One of my former pastors once said, occasionally some will accuse evangelicals of being too atonement-centered. And he replied, but I don't know what it would mean to be too centered on the suffering servant and him suffering for our salvation. That's what makes us his people. That's our identity. Jesus is our identity if we're believers. That's what it means to be a Christian. It makes you ask, well, what am I centered on today? Let me ask you this. How would your obituaries read at your funeral? He really loved? Pick your hobby. You ever been to those funerals? Or just like, well, I, I think I got a good picture of this person. They love fishing. That was about it. I sure loved a good hunting trip. I mean, <laughs> they sure loved to collect seashells. He sure was obsessed with the football team. Boy, he sure loved, he loved those. She, she loved fashion. That was it, man. That was and a good time. Oh, boy. What would people say you were focused on in this life? You died today, and we had to gather for your funeral. You see, we all have an identity center. We live from our hearts, don't we? Uh, I get tickled at that saying, follow your heart. We already do. We already do. All of humanity lives naturally for their passions. What if there was a passion, though, an identity that was gloriously transformative? From pride to humility, from grumbling to gratitude, from fear to peace, from despair to hope. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 you have a, if you don't have a Bible, you may use that one there in the pew. That's why we have them there. Isaiah 53 is found on 650, 651. I definitely encourage you to have a paper Bible open in front of you so that you can follow along undistracted, untempted. Heaven knows we lead less time uh, with our phones and devices and social media. And just take, use this time to focus on the Word, to uh, adult. And focus our minds purely on the word. Isaiah has been, since chapter 40, leading up to this chapter, preaching hope to believers. He's been reminding them of God's salvation to come in full in the future. In this later section of Isaiah where we are today, there are two servants in contrast. So that's... In chapter 41 and on, there is the true servant, son of David, to come, and then there is ancient Israel that Isaiah holds up. They've been blind and fearful. And it's the kind of contrast, friends, this, is kind of, this kind of contrast between two major figures is not uncommon in the Bible. Israel was called a son, and they are in contrast with the son in the Bible. The Christ would not only be 
God's Holy Spirit anointed king, but the prophet, the priest, the temple, the sacrifice, and further back, he would be the greater image bearer that Adam was not. So no wonder in the New Testament, the Spirit testifies that the promises of the Old Testament are yes and amen in Christ. Shouldn't be any surprise to us. And nowhere in the Old Testament is the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, more fully and clearly revealed than in the prophecies recorded by Isaiah. He reveals him as the incarnate Son of God, Emmanuel, the wonderful Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace, the branch, and most frequently, the servant of the Lord, the servant. And so as you read Isaiah and his, to his original audience, you ask, how can sinful Israel actually become the servants of holy God? How will God deliver them from their sin? And God answers that by his own mighty arm, his anointed and appointed servant, the Messiah. It's through him God will form one true Israel comprised of children of Abraham through faith in Christ. So if you really just get a, you know, back up into chapter 52, I'm actually going to start there this morning for reading purposes. Then I'm going to focus in on verses 10 through 12. But if you look at that entire 15 verse section, 52 verse 13 through 53 verse 12, verse 5, central part of it, he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment of, for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. The offer of a sinless one dying in the place of sinners in order to purchase their peace with God is the heart and the focal point of everything the book of Isaiah has to say about the forgiveness of sin. How can God's promises come true for guilty sinners? How can the glory of God come down to people who deserve the wrath of God and it, it's being answered right here in this section. So I'm going to read to you. I'm just going to read the whole section. And then we're going to focus in on a few verses that deal with his victory and resurrection. Look at Isaiah 52 and following. See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Okay, I just want you to note. That's how the whole thing starts, right? You get that. You see how it's. Starting us off. But now let's continue. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man and his form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him for they will see what had not been told them and they will understand what they had not heard. Who has believed what we've heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before them like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was, he was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains. But we, in turn, regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. 
we all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. But he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days. By his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. This is God's word. Is that not one of the most amazing texts in the Old Testament? I mean, is not that passage holy ground, if you could say it like that? God's delight to redeem us through Jesus was foretold, and his victory in securing our redemption was guaranteed. And we see that right there in our verses this morning, verses 10 through 12. After his rejection by men, his suffering, his disfiguring, his piercing, and slaughter on behalf of God's people, we see victory again right here. In verses 10 through 12. Many, many facets of the servant's character are revealed. He is priest, sacrifice, servant, sufferer, conqueror, intercessor. He is the channel of God's grace to sinners. There's only one pontiff. His name is Jesus. In him, the holiness and mercy of God are perfectly reconciled. In Christ, God is just and the justifier of sinners. He is the key to all God's plans for his people and for the world. And Isaiah's portrait of him is amazing. In startling contrast to what happened in a normal guilt offering, the victim in this case will not cease to exist. He will see, the text says. Ancient Israel already confounded that God's chosen servant would suffer for sins not his own in such a shameful way. You needed to know in a clear way now that this was according to God's plan, verse 10, to his satisfaction of God's righteousness, verse 11, and to God's exaltation, verse 12. Nowhere else does the Old Testament provide an example of a sacrifice of a person being accepted as an atonement for others. Only here does God take the initiative to forgive by such means. Right here in the Old Testament. Here's the central point. You can believe, you can believe Jesus satisfied, you can believe Jesus satisfied God's just demands. You can believe Jesus satisfied God's just demands. Because he was raised from the dead for our justification. Because he was raised from the dead for our justification. 
have three points this morning. Number one, God delighted to save you. Remember when people would express gratitude to someone and then the person would respond with, my pleasure. That was not invented by Chick-fil-A. Though they do that well most of the time, right? Sometimes I could put a few more fries in the, in the case, you know what I mean? I'd appreciate that. But they do always say, my pleasure. I mean, in that response is the surprising confession of delight in serving someone. And if you've ever served food, it is amazing because people can get cranky in a food line. We typically expect people do not want to be bothered. Some of us dread going to a counter at all. Can, can I ask for, you know, you ever be, are you that person maybe? You're like, do I go back and ask for ketchup? Do I go back and ask for this? Because we just expect them not to want to help. It's amazing when someone says, my pleasure. But what's more amazing, look at this passage here. God reveals it was his amazing and mysterious delight to suffer and serve us through Jesus in the most costly way, in Jesus dying in the place of his people on the cross. He delighted in love for sinners to put Jesus under the weight of our sins and God's wrath. That's what it means here, to crush. Only God could save his people from their sins. This is not what some regard as divine child abuse. People who read the Bible like that just prove they haven't read it very well. This is divine intervention of the first order. <laughs> Top example. The author wants us to see God not abusing, but intervening through the free action of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father's plan, the Son's substitution, the Spirit's revelation of it all right here. Jesus, being of one will with the Father and the Spirit, shared in the surprising joy of enduring such sorrow on our behalf. Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was laid before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. People thought nothing of Jesus. Eh, unimpressed. I didn't even give him a second thought. Jesus thought nothing of the shame he would bear on our behalf. It was a joy for him to love us. Yes, he, tr he was truly man. He felt the grief that awaited him in the Garden of Gethsemane. The wrath he did consider, yes, but our, but our burdens, the burden of our sin, no. Why? Because our Savior loved us, because the Father loved us, because the Spirit loved us. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. My pleasure. Can you believe that? It's amazing. It makes sense why the hymn was written, Amazing Love. How can it be? And verse 10 gives, again, God's point of view. Even though Jesus was crucified by the hands of wicked men, his death was determined beforehand by God. In Acts chapter 2, Peter proclaimed, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, 
as you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Jesus was not a martyr, nor was his death an accident. He was God's sacrifice for the sins of his people. And verse 10 caps off by saying, by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. Uh, God prepared us for this kind of incredible sovereign power and his providence, especially back in, looking back to Genesis when Joseph's, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. They disobeyed God's declared will and sinning against their family that way, but their sin was part of God's mysterious decreed will and plan. Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The murder of Jesus was the greatest evil ever committed. But it, like everything else, was always under the reign and purposes of our sovereign God. People make their choices. But God, who holds them fully responsible, guides all things towards his end and glory. The Lord superintends all things. The murder of Jesus was never not under the control and guidance of God. And the Bible reveals this incredible paradox that man is totally responsible and God is totally sovereign. In the Bible, we see that Satan, the Tower of Babel, Pharaoh, Ahab, and Jezebel, the Babylonians, Haman, the Romans, even the Jewish leaders, all have a false sense of sovereignty. Human free agency is not sovereignty. That belongs to God. It was the Lord's overseeing and providential hand over his free creatures then, and it is the same today. When you see Jesus on the cross in the scripture, you should see the wicked actions of men and our own sin, but you should also see the control of God and the movement of his sovereign purposes. Isaiah said it was God's delight to serve us this costly salvation. God's judicial hand has already been in view in Isaiah 53, looking back at verse 6, causing iniquity to fall. Who else has the authority and sovereignty to cause the iniquity to fall on the servant? It's God. And that applies to the crushing here that we see it was the Lord's righteous delight and will that Jesus would be offered for sinners in victory for them. And the term iniquity, that's not a word we use often. Often, It carries the idea of weight of our guilt and wrongdoing. There's a weight. There's a burden to sin. Our sin is debt heavy. And friends, all the ways we failed to act, or all the ways we did wrong to somebody else, or all the ways we acted out of selfishness and all the ways we cursed and lusted and, and hated, they add up, don't they? Our sins can cause us heavy grief and anxiety and pain. Sin is a burden we cannot bear. We need someone who can take it away. We need Jesus. And in order for God to restore his people to himself, he required the removal of guilt to form a holy people in himself. God will not and cannot tolerate sin or sinners. His presence is unbearable in our sinful state. We need our guilt removed. We need righteousness added. And I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. But note verse 10, foretold that this removal of guilt would happen when God would make Jesus the guilt offering. Compensation for guilt, restitution came through the cost of Christ at Calvary. 
And so when the servant gave up his life, he functioned as compensation or restitution to God for the damages done against him by those who sinned against God. I mean, think of who sin is against this morning, beloved. Think about it it first in in human examples. I mean, an attack against uh, my house, for example, is one thing, right? Well, let's just take it up a notch. How about an attack against town hall? Well, that's another level. But think about like an assault against the White House. Can you imagine how serious that would, things would get? Friends, sin is first against our maker. It is not a small thing to rebel against God, and we all have. You're not sinning against some, you're not sinning against some mere neighbor that you can just curse out and walk away from. You're sinning against the creator of the world. It's rebellion against the one who formed you in the womb, who gave you your life. It's sin against the one who holds your next breath and heartbeat in his hand. It's sin against the judge of the whole earth. Because he made you and you are obligated to worship him. You were made to worship God and not yourself. We commit crimes against heaven when we are living in disobedience to God, doing what we want rather than what he commands. We are all sinners and we all know it. We take this guilt on our conscience and suppress the truth about God in pursuit of further unrighteousness. The will and delight of God, not the cross, but the glory of redemption is what he had in mind right here. A great multitude, greater than anyone can count from every nation on earth, Revelation 7 says. So God was pleased to go through this anguish for our salvation. The actual torture of Jesus was agony beyond measure for the Father because he's unchanging. As he showed by the darkening the skies eerily and shaking the ground where the sun died. This was immeasurable pain followed by infinite pleasure and joy. I mean, what are we to say to this? How about Jesus, thank you. The mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend. The agonies of Calvary. You, the perfect Holy One, crushed your son who drank the bitter bitter cup reserved for me. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. I couldn't wait to get together and sing that this morning. Verse 10, he gives that glorious guarantee. He will see his seed and he will prolong his days. This one who is given in death to pay for the sins of God's people will live again, Isaiah says. No wonder, no wonder Paul said, as I read you the beginning of the service in 1 Corinthians 15, that the resurrection of Christ is being in accordance with the scriptures. It was always present. The servant will live a long time in the future and see many spiritual children. I mean, what a picture. I mean, those who had strayed like sheep, verse 6, return as children. The servant who died, the Lord shall prolong his days. No wonder it starts off, see, my servant will be successful. He'll be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. It's like every time you go back and read Isaiah 52, uh, verse 13. It's like every time you go back to read it, it sounds like this. See, I told you so. When you go back and reread it, reread it, it's like that's how it begins. See, I told you he'd be successful. 
I mean, what a plan, what a Savior. It just builds more into verse 11, which brings me to my second point. You can believe Jesus satisfied God's just demands because he was raised from the dead for our justification. God delighted to save you. But second, God provided righteousness for you. God provided righteousness for you. And verse 11 continues to tell how the servant is the executor of this great work and elaborates further now. Hebrew scholar Alec Matir translates verse 11 like this. Arising from the toil of his soul, he will see light, be satisfied. The servant is said that he will not only suffer, uh, be the sin bearer of God's people, but he will get to rise and see it and be satisfied. Essentially, essentially, just as the Lord saw his creation was good, so the servant will see his work is satisfactory. The Bible says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. Completed. It's finished. And there's a combination here of the servant living and his people being made righteous through him before God. A combination here of the servant living and his people being made righteous through him before God. Look at the text again. The verse goes on to describe the satisfaction of the servant by his knowledge because he knows exactly what's required in order to save sinners and he knows the outcome. My righteous servant or that righteous one, my servant. This is an an emphatic commendation in the text. The servant is not waiting to be satisfied based on what we do or by how we act in in this situation. He's satisfied based upon what he has done in this glorious news. This great one will, the text says, justify many. Like this, will provide righteousness for the many. You know what we don't have? Righteousness. We have sin. We have unrighteousness before God. Because God is perfect and holy. Sinners have no righteous standing before God. Take a good long look at your life with me this morning. Do you have on your own merits perfect righteousness to enter into his heaven? No. So the verb here will justify has a judicial forensic sense because the context of the chapter mentions bearing the guilt of others, punishment and court proceedings. This is God declaring from his throne, the seat of judgment, that his his people be what he has made them. Through the work of the servant Christ, God declares and makes his people righteous in his sight. Wow. I mean, pay attention to the grammar here. The servant's actions, not the deeds or faith that the many demonstrate, cause the guilty ones to become righteous. The servant's action will cause the guilty ones to become righteous. God deserves all credit in this text for what has occurred. Glory to God alone. How can a holy God be reconciled with rebels? Well, not through merely overlooking their sin. No, by judging their sin upon Jesus and granting them mercy, forgiveness, and righteousness. That's not their own. The many is Isaiah's key word for those whom the servant came to save. Jesus calls them all the Father gives me in John 6, 37. 
Jesus did not die to purchase save ability. No, no. He took the names of all who were united to him to the cross with him. His payment for sin was our payment because believers were united with him when he suffered and died on that cross. Can you see it? It's over these, uh, God cast that robe of his own righteousness. We're not only fam family members, but we wear the family likeness, righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. God made him who no sin to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We have the doctrine of justification by grace alone through trusting in the merits of Christ alone. You see, justification is only it's not only him taking on our sins, bearing our sins. That's half of it. It also includes him giving us the righteousness of God positively. So we need a righteousness outside of ourselves to cover us because we're enemies of God. That's why Paul said in Romans 4, 24 and 25, it will be credited to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered up for our trespasses, sounds like Isaiah, and raised for our justification. Paul's just reading Isaiah. When God the Father raised Christ from the dead, it was a demonstration that he accepted Christ's suffering and death as full payment for sin. And that the Father's favor, no longer his wrath against sin, was directed towards Christ and through Christ towards those who believe. Some of you need to be reminded that God loves you. He's covered you in Jesus. He's included you in the favor of Jesus. I struggle with that one. I have no struggle with the fact that I'm a sinner. That's, that seems really abundant. Don't ask my family, but it seems really abundant and clear. God would love me and Include me in this kind of favor. Wow. True believers are united with Christ in his death and resurrection by grace through faith. Faith is the reasoned response to the truth about Jesus. Faith is when you understand the, the, the truth and say, oh, yeah, I'm clinging to Christ alone. Faith is not superstition in the Bible, not Christian faith. Christian faith is the reasoned faith. I know God's holy. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that Christ is the son of God who lived and died in my place and was raised for my justification. And fourth, I, I believe I need to turn from my sins and trust in him. That's reasoned faith. I mean, look at the logic. God's approval of Christ at the resurrection results in God's approval also of all who are united to Christ and in this way results in their justification. You know, we're all Pretty good self-justifiers. I don't want to see any spouses out there elbowing each other, you know. Well, I thought you did this. Well, you did it. Well, I thought, well, this is what I was doing. You know, we can uh, watch a kid. Get on to a kid in your life and like, well, you know, they'll give all these self-justifications. We're all naturally, we can't do that before God. You know what happens? Mouths are shut when you stand before the maker. There's no escape. He knows everything. He knows your motives. He knows it all. We have no way to justify ourselves. Jesus must be our justification Amen. through his righteousness. Do you want your guilt removed? Really, do you want it removed? Do you want to be free from your sin debt? Do you want rest and freedom 
from the anxiety that comes as a result of bad decisions and sins against God. Friends, listen, look at Isaiah right here. Come in trust of the work of Christ. Be saved today. Repent and trust in Christ. Believe in God's Son sent for your sins and for your, your, your judgment and raised for your salvation. Maybe you're struggling with doubts today. I don't know. Pastor Gary, I, I get to some of this, but I don't know if I'm sure if I'm a Christian. Let me ask you this. Could I talk you out of following Christ today? If your loved one walked away from the gospel, would you still follow? Let me tell you something. I love my family. Ain't none of them going to talk me out of Jesus. He made them. He's more, who's, the, who's greater, the maker or, or the creation? The maker. No, nobody is worth more than Jesus. Nothing. Some of you, I wonder, could, could you be persuaded away from it? Well, there's assurance right there. If you know Jesus is the real treasure, follow him. Christian friends, you know that you're living out the gospel of, of justification by grace alone through faith alone. When you wake up in the morning and you say to yourself, you know, my life isn't all it could be, but I'm completely forgiven and I'm eternally loved. It's a love I didn't deserve and could not have earned. So let your heart be filled with gratitude because of what Christ did. You are an adop adopted son or daughter. That's right. Of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Stop to consider the reality that a holy God doesn't look on you as a judge, but he looks on you with the loving eyes of a father. Because Jesus took your judgment on himself. How could you not be filled with thankfulness? Man, we ought to be the most thankful people. Some of you may be under conviction. You know, Pastor, I've been grumbling this week. Well, get in line. Repent of it. We should be so thankful. Not only that God woke us up, start there, but he accepts us as his child through Christ. Wow. Bunch of rebels like us. As Paul Tripp says, vertical gratitude towards God, not only your, your heart and your heart, but also how it doesn't just transform, but also it transforms all your horizontal relationships and situations. How is Jesus transforming how you treat others, especially those in your own home? How's it working out? You've been pardoned. You've been forgiven. You've been given loads of patience and grace. How's it working out towards your loved ones? How about your coworkers? I could meddle right there a little bit today. Coworkers can be tough. Or neighbors. Go to a family reunion sometime. Oh, my. Do your loved ones see you walking in the joy of your justification? Do they see humility or do they see pride? You're constantly talking about, I'm, I'm this, I'm that. We, can we just put that away? We're a whole lot of nothing. We're a whole lot of sin. I am what I am by the grace of God. Do, you, do they see humility or pride? Do they see gratitude or grumbling? What do they see, friends? It's a sweet gift that in God's grace, we are blessed with the most wonderful and stable identity one can ever hope for. It will never fail us. It will never shame us. And it can never be taken away from us. 
You can believe Jesus satisfied God's just demands because he was raised from the dead for our justification. God delighted to save you, believer, provided righteousness for you. But number three, God gifts Jesus. God gifts Jesus and he gifts his people. He gifts Jesus and his people. In verse 12 summarizes what began all the way back at 52, verse 13. I mean, let's, you know, we're used to using our, 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 our devices to zoom out, right? If, if you're too old to know what I'm talking about, ask a young person. They'll show you how to do it. It was really interesting when my, I started trying to show my dad this. Turned 77 this week, and uh, now we can't get him off his phone. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we're going to zoom out, back out some here. Look at, look at back at 52, verses 13 through 15 there, just broad view. We began with pagans, and then Israelites in verses 1 through 6 and 53, witnesses and hearers, insiders and outsiders. But in the end, we only have one group at the end of this whole thing, redeemed transgressors, many of them. And notice how the witnesses themselves speak in this, throughout this text. Just zoom out. They speak in very personal terms. It's as if though they, while they speak together, it's like each one makes their own confession. I have transgressed. The sacrifice was for me. And by their own confession, they show the way to others. The message of the, of the servant song is for transgressors everywhere. That's what I'm trying to tell you. All they have to do is admit that's why they are uh, what they are. Sinners and transgressors who need the servant. And lay hold of him. God says he will apportion to the servant the great or the many for whom he died. Just like Jesus said. And he will divide, the text says, the spoils with the strong or the numerous. Scholars note that this says he will share out the mighty ones as his spoil, i.e. meaning the strong on earth become the spoil of the mighty servant of God. And he includes his people in that. The meek shall inherit the earth. God will give him a people as a gift, and the earth's mighty opposition will be overcome, if I could put it to you like that. That's why we sing, and we are raised with him. Death is dead. Love has won. Christ has conquered. And we shall reign with him, for he lives. Christ is risen from the dead. I mean, look at the reasons. Look at verse 12. Look at the reasons. Why? Jesus, first of all, because Jesus poured out his life unto death, offering his life voluntary, voluntarily to the to point of death. Second, he was numbered with the transgressor. So he, that means he identified himself with those in need, sinners, by becoming a man. That's why God came in true and full humanity to identify with us. Three, bore the sin of the many. All who would ever repent and believe. This Jesus is for you. If you can hear me this morning. He's for you. Who would ever repent of their sins. Take God's side against their sin. And trust in Jesus. Those whom the Father has elected. As a gift to the servant. And fourth. Made intercession for the transgressors. Fulfilled the role of the one mediator. Between God and man. This is the servant's work. On behalf of those he represents. He secures their acceptance with the Father. 
It's wonderful and eternal. What a perspective on life. I mean, church, what happens when we stop living from this perspective right here? Maybe you're in relationship struggles today. Maybe you're dealing with a number of anxieties. Maybe just think there's a number of issues in the room. And I want to talk to you for just a moment about how important this perspective is. And Paul Tripp was so helpful to me here. Believers who don't understand the right here, right now blessings of God's grace spend themselves into hopeless debt in search of identity. Parents who fail to understand the, quote, nowism, as he calls it, of the gospel, of God's justifying grace, put the burden of their identity on their children, a terrible burden for a child to bear. Pastors, forgetting the gospel that they preach, ask for ministry to give them identity and end up beaten down, discouraged, and burned out. Teenagers, unaware of the present benefits of the gospel of grace, they have been taught, experience all kinds of anxiety, and make all kinds of regrettable decisions in search of identity. Who hasn't been there as a teen? Christian men, forgetting their vertical identity, feign strong, person, uh, feign strong personality, big muscles, and domineering macho masculinity as their identity. It's sad to think about how much gospel, he says, identity amnesia lives in the church, weakening its function and witness. But when you understand your identities in Christ and that you live your life to image him and testify to him and to be his ambassador, it transforms us. It transforms masculinity, femininity. It transforms parenting and marriage life and single life. It transforms work life, all those things, because we do it for Jesus. How is this going to bring glory to Jesus? Is this an obedience to Jesus? Jesus paid it all for me. That's what I know. How about you? Can't you just sing this morning? The voice that spans the years, speaking life, stirring hope, bringing peace to us, will sound till he appears. For he lives, Christ is risen from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, we are amazed that you would be delighted to save us, to serve us the way you have. We know the cross was a great burden for you, Jesus, but it was a joy for you as you considered the glories that would follow. We just marvel at your love. And God, we praise you that you have provided our greatest need, righteousness from above. So we could stand redeemed and forgiven in your presence forevermore. And Lord, we give you glory because, Jesus, you have the name that's above every name. 
And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And you have a special people unto yourself. And you include them in your victory. Help us to live from that. Transform us from prideful to humble people, from grumbling people to thankful people, Lord. To people no longer scurrying for, scurrying for the world's identities through strength and power and money and looks and all those vain things. Help us to, Lord, be renewed inwardly instead and fight our identity and being redeemed and serving our Savior. By the grace of the Spirit, we ask, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.